If you're a fiction reader and you've noticed that novels are getting more political and more overtly aligned with the progressive political project in particular, there's a reason for this. Big publishing houses are increasingly hiring what are called sensitivity readers to vet authors' work to ensure that it doesn't cause offense. My guest on the podcast today has written a piece about this trend for Reason Magazine. It's titled, Sensitivity Readers Are the New Literary Gatekeepers. And it argues that overzealous language policing on race and gender is shaping the publishing industry in profound ways. Rosenfield is an American culture writer, a columnist at Unheard, and the co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. She's also a novelist. Her most recent book is No One Will Miss Her. Kat Rosenfield is my guest today on Lean Out. Kat, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks so much for having me. So nice to have you on. As I was telling you, this is exactly why I've expanded the podcast is to be able to talk about stories like the one that you published this week. Let's start by just introducing listeners to the main character in your reason piece. Give us the broad strokes of uh, Alberto Galaba's story. Okay, Alberto Galaba Jr. Uh, is a writer. He is a Filipino child of immigrants, grew up in Hawaii. I believe his dad cut sugarcane for a living. Um, so he was a recent graduate. He worked his way up, you know, got an education and uh, got an MFA from UC Irvine, I believe, it was a prestigious MFA program, had started a novel there that he was hoping to sell. So the novel was called University Thugs, and the main character is a young Black ex-con who is now attending a prestigious university. Um, I think it's like sort of a stand-in for Charlottesville, um, what is it, UVA? That's that's what's there, right? <laughs> and um, he, so he, he wrote this novel, he sent it to an agent. Agent is super excited about this novel. It's vivid, it's visceral, written with this you know, amazing kind of vernacular, just incredibly immersive. And um, so he's gonna do a big submission push. And then on the eve of the submission, the agent comes back to Alberto and says, we really wanna highlight your identity more. You know, We really want editors to know who they're working with. So can you, tell us more about, you know, what it was like to come of age and become a writer as a young black man. Record scratch, freeze frame. (laughs) (laughs) Alberto says, "Uh, I'm not black, (laughs) I'm Filipino. The agent says, oh no. And uh, everything kind of falls apart from there um, because at the moment in publishing, there is a lot of concern about this notion of straying outside one's lane as an author, which is to say that if you're writing characters and especially perspective characters in fiction that are outside the parameters of your own identity, um, agents and editors get very nervous. That this is a form of stolen valor, cultural appropriation, maybe theft, and that you're going to get it wrong and be insensitive. So 
at this point, everything kind of falls apart. Um, Galaba at first was subjected to a series of kind of increasingly intrusive edits as the agent began to encourage him to make more and more of his characters um, East Asian, perhaps a Pacific Islander, <laughs> eventually <laughs> uh, comes in and says, we want you to make your main character Filipino. This should really about the, be about the Filipino experience, at which point he said, no, I, I'm just going to stop doing this. Um, but the reason that I wrote about this, you know, I interviewed uh, Alberto for this piece and, you know, the thing that I was writing about was in the course of trying to edit his book so that it would be uh, appropriate for submission per this agent's ideas. He was subjected to what is basically called a sensitivity read uh, in which a woman of color, a black woman, was brought in to read and review the book ostensibly to make sure that he'd gotten things right when it came to writing outside his identity. And I think a lot of people will be very surprised. I mean, people outside of the media, outside of publishing, I don't think people are very aware that this trend has come about. And so, as you point out, there's now these rosters of sensitivity readers uh, for any type of, quote, lived experience you can imagine, from agoraphobia to racial, sexual, and religious identities. This trend, in some ways, originated in the young adult YA genre. How did it come about? So yeah, YA is often sort of where um, stuff like this incubates. So anytime you have, you know, sort of a moral panic coming down the pike, it tends to incubate in YA because it, there's this concern over, you know, what are young people reading? Is this going to harm young people? Impressionable young people are reading these books and, uh, you know, are internalizing bad messages and so on. So in YA, it basically, so it, it corresponded with uh, this big push that started around 2014 to start diversifying young adult fiction. Um, there was a survey done that found that something like 10% of young adult fiction featured diverse characters, which is to say everybody else was, you know, white and heterosexual and so on. Um, this was horrifying, it caused quite a scandal. And so all of the authors who were writing in the YA space suddenly started to write more diversely. Um, you know, you had basically every everything that sold um, the following years seemed to be sort of written around this idea that we're going to have more diverse characters, more sexualities, more races, more ethnic identities, more disabled characters. The problem was the authors of these books were still a bunch of white women. And this became, once again, a source of scandal. And I think to mitigate this problem, um, if you saw it as a problem, the notion of sensitivity readers started to come about. The idea was if you must write outside your identity category and the sort of subtextual implication was you probably shouldn't do this, but if you had to, at least you needed to give a person from a marginalized identity a seat at the table, um, consult them, make sure that you weren't getting it quote unquote wrong. And as you point out in the piece, there's some kind of uh, pretty big economic considerations here as well. So publishing is both very liberal, but also very elite, as you point out, and people who work in it have to be able to afford an education and be able to afford to live in big, expensive cities on low salaries. So they tend to have family money. Now, the sensitivity readers allow these big publishers to say that their teams are from these extremely diverse backgrounds without hiring any new people or addressing underlying exclusionary nature of the business itself. So these sensitivity readers are freelance. How much might someone get paid to read a manuscript? <laughs> it's not very much. Uh, a sensitivity reader is a freelancer and they get paid a 
maybe a couple hundred bucks per manuscript. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a, a gig that has some power, some gatekeeping power, but very, very little remuneration. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, this was obviously for publishers who have been subject to the same kind of reckoning, uh, you know, racial reckoning that has been gripping all of the other media industries. Um, you know, employing sensitivity readers was a way to basically, you know, say that you were giving all of these people from marginalized backgrounds a seat at your table without ever actually buying any extra chairs. Mm -hmm. And what do you see as like, what do you see as the major pressures driving this? Is it Twitter? Is it like young politicized readers? Is it the writers themselves? Where is this coming from? So it's not coming from readers. I want to be very clear on that. Readers don't care about this. Um, this is very much something that's happening within the bubble that is the sort of per personal professional world of publishing, which, as you mentioned, is quite elite. These are a lot of basically highly educated, usually white people kind of panicking about, you know, racial identity, racial trauma, um, you know, getting it wrong, you know, wanting to be good liberals and so on. Um, so what's driving this? On the one hand, for publishers, especially, you know, it's it's seen as a way to show that you are with the times that you're doing something for diversity. It's also seen as potentially kind of hedging your bets or, or shoring things up against being attacked on Twitter. Um, you know, you have obviously people who sort of make a habit, even a leisure activity out of hunting for offensive material or something they can claim as offensive in books and reacting against it and whipping up a big mob. Authors, you know, will will get on this boat either to indicate that they're good people or also because they're hoping that employing a sensitivity reader will preclude them from being attacked. It never works that way, by the way, but um, people mm -hmm. nevertheless remain hopeful. The other thing, though, is and, and I think that this is really kind of fundamental to the idea of sensitivity readers as they were first envisioned is there is a sense right now in in some spaces within publishing that we need to diversify that there are groups of authors who are underrepresented and there are groups of authors who are overrepresented and employing sensitivity readers making them part of the process essentially creates an obstacle for the writers who we consider to be overrepresented that makes it a little bit harder for them to get their work out there and makes it ostensibly a little bit easier for a person from another background to take up that space on the shelf mm -hmm. and and another point you made that i've been thinking about a lot is just that when you're employing a sensitivity reader you are deciding that that person represents an entire demographic which no person can right so it's it's an inherently sort of condescending and, and perhaps even racist assumption to make oh i think it's massively racist or sexist as the case may be i mean this idea that you know you can get one person from a group to speak to the thoughts and feelings and how you know what it's like to be a human being from that background um yeah no that's that's you know what rank bigotry and and uh, crude stereotyping at its base mm -hmm. also terrible for art so i i noticed a while ago i read a lot of books i review a lot of books i noticed a while ago that you would get these like weird insertions in books that didn't make sense you know where someone would pull back and go as a white cisgender able-bodied woman you know and you can just see the sort of sensitivity readers getting that in there and it doesn't make for good writing um and it also assumes that the sensitivity only goes one way that the sensitivity is always toward 
the woke sensibility as opposed to other viewpoints, for example. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of this is that, you know, you are considered to be sort of morally precluded from writing outside your identity category if you're a member of uh, what's seen as a privileged category. But nobody ever tells, you know, a writer from a disabled background that they can't write able-bodied characters or, you know, a writer of color that they can't write white characters. Nobody ever tells women that they can't write men. It only ever flows in one direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why do you think, I mean, when I speak to authors about this privately, everybody hates it. I've never heard anyone <laughs> say that this is good for art or, you know, but we don't see a lot of public pushback on this. Why? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult because the sort of the tenor of the conversation is such, especially online, that if you say that you don't want to employ a sensitivity reader, the answer that you get from some of the angriest and most obnoxious people on Twitter is, why do you love racism? You know? <laughs> Um, and, and I think also, you know, it's difficult, it is difficult to, for authors who have found this intrusive, um, you know, there are books that have been spiked as a result of sensitivity reads sort of gone awry, but it's very difficult to come out and say, yes, my book was too offensive to be published, you know, mm. um, nobody really wants to do that, especially if they want to continue working in the industry, which is small and you know limited in opportunity and always contracting so i think a lot of authors are sort of choosing to keep quiet about this in order to continue working and they really do see it as kind of one or the other mm. and just lastly kat i mean you have all these moral panics i'm thinking about the ya manifesto no book deals for traders which you also wrote about <laughs> Um, this, of course, demanded nobody associated with the Trump administration get a book deal. I'm thinking about the upset at Penguin Random House uh, here in Canada. Penguin Random House, of course, publishing my book. I, I think you published with them as well um, about Jordan Peterson. Sort of just to look ahead, like what do you think this all means for the business and for, for readers? I sort of... <laughs> I really don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I keep expecting there to be a backswing. And I have heard, you know, these sort of one-off anecdotes of authors, usually in genre fiction, people who write crime fiction or thrillers or mysteries, pushing back against intrusive editing of this type and being successful at it. So I do think in part, it is just a question of enough people getting brave enough to say, no, I'm not going to allow you to interfere with my work in this way. You know, we're just gonna have to let the chips fall where they may. Um, I think that perhaps I don't know, maybe we'll see a divide where, you know, authors who want to engage in this can and will and authors who don't can and will, you know, will have separate imprints where you are either expected to do this or not, depending on what your sensibilities are. But of course, as you noted, nobody who writes fiction likes to do this. Nobody wants this. And I also think that readers don't particularly want it. You know, it is it is intrusive. It does wreck the flow of books to have this sort of fourth wall break to make sure that you're sort of noting the proper progressive pieties. And yeah, so I, I would expect that eventually it's going to stop um, simply because, you know, people want their art to be entertaining and eventually things will 
always naturally gravitate back in that direction. But I do sort of anticipate that before that happens, it's going to be ugly and maybe uglier for a while. Mm. Well, lots to think about. Uh, what a great piece. I've been thinking about it since I read it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 